Welcome to episode 152 of the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This episode is with strength and conditioning coach and education professional, Rich Clark. And Rich has loads of information out there and set to be even more information coming out on uh, coaching agility. And this is what we focused on in this episode. So it was great to dive into his definition of agility. And we had a little discussion around what coaches mean when they talk about players not moving well. Is this agility or do they mean something else or do they mean a number of different things? We spoke about planning for individuals within a team setting. So when we do notice things that need to be worked on to improve a player's agility, how we factor that into dealing with a number of different players at the same time. We talked about technical development, what can be done on the pitch, what needs to be done away from the pitch. We also spoke about designing drills as well. So how specific do we need to be? How do we go about designing drills? So hopefully loads of takeaways in this one. I really enjoyed chatting with Rich. It was my first time speaking to him. But I've already planned him and I've spoken to him about it, getting a part to him because I feel like we covered absolutely loads in this episode, but I still feel like there's loads that we could still cover as well. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Just before we jump into it, I just want to give a quick heads up. As I record this episode or or this intro, um, we are holding our event tonight at Preston. So 31st of August, we're going to be at Preston North End's training ground. The presentations from that event, if you're not able to make it live, will be uploaded to our online community. And we have now confirmed our next event, which I said about in the previous episode, which is at South Wales Sport Park, um, sorry, South Wales Uni Sport Park. And that's Wednesday, the 22nd of September, 6 till 9 p.m. We've got some incredible speakers on this one. Mike Beer, who's first team strength conditioning coach at Cardiff City. We've got Patrick Orme from the previous episode, Head of Fitness and Conditioning at Bristol City. And also Reese Carr. Um, Reese is the founder of Soccer Science, the Soccer Science Conference, which has been incredible over the last few years. And also previously at Sheffield United and Bristol City as well, and does some amazing work too. So three brilliant presenters at this event. So go to footballfitfed.com, click the shop, and you're able to get... Depending when you're listening, you're able to get early bird tickets on this event as this goes out at the moment. So go and grab yourself a ticket. It's set to be a really, really good evening down at South Wales Uni. And I hope to see as many of you guys there as possible. So I'll get into the episode now, episode 152 with Rich Clark. Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 152. I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast, Rich Clark. Rich, how are we doing? Yeah, good, Ben. Thanks very much for the invite. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Eh? And I've got to thank previous guest of the podcast, Cy Brundish, for the little link up. <laughs> I appreciate it, Cy, so thank you very much. Um, yeah, same, same from my end. We were just chatting about, um, about Brundish being a legend, so yeah, he shout is. out to him. He certainly is. Um, and we could probably do a whole whole podcast on Cyber Runders. You'll have to do that at some point. Yeah, <laughs> you, should. You, you should get a group, of, a group of four or five people on just to talk about him. <laughs> Without him, he's, he's not invited. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's not exactly. invited to talk about him. No, that's class. No, well, Rich, thanks a lot, thanks a lot for coming on. Um, we're going to cover a lot of different topics, basically around a lot around agility. But just before we jump into that, do you want to just take us through, I know you've got loads of stuff going on at the moment, so do you want to just take us through a little bit of background initially and then also what you've got going on right now? 
Yeah, sure. Um, I try and keep it brief because it gets a bit a bit complicated, I suppose. Um, SNC coach for 10 years, worked in a combination of different environments, not necessarily in full-time capacities. I've not been in, in kind of a full-time club role of any description for, for a very long time, um, but I've always just split my time between a little bit in the private setting, a little bit in kind of organizations and clubs and in the higher education world from more of a more of a lecturing position. So currently doing a PhD based around change of direction and agility, which let's not talk about the PhD itself in too much more detail. <laughs> um, do some private coaching kind of with various populations, you know, all the way from kind of 10 through till um through the kind of 50s and 60s year olds um do a little bit of kind of I guess you would call it consultancy it's maybe a bit of a dirty word um <laughs> but some some shorter term roles in different sporting environments um that's really what I've done scholarship athletes the task system and things like that over the years and I'm now moving into a, a slightly different structure of work where I'm changing university and going to a part-time role to run a master's degree I am going to be leading the SNC for Bristol Flyers basketball from September going into this season. And then I've got a couple of days a week building out strength coach curriculums, which is kind of my own um, strength and conditioning based education um, projects, which I'm really trying, really excited about and really trying to trying to work on. So, yeah, fingers and pies. Variety is what I is what I like, Ben. Yeah, no, brilliant. I know there's some good stuff in there. So around agility, where did this interest come from initially? Because I know you've mentioned the PhD, even though we're not going to go into detail on it. Um, but where was where was the initial sort of spark of interest around agility? Yeah, whenever somebody's doing a PhD, the last question they want to be asked is, <laughs> how's the PhD going? Yeah. Oh, should we move on? Um, yeah, look, good, you know, good question. It's, and I've thought, you know, I've thought about this a lot. I, I think it's a combination of things. One, feeling like you need to specialize sometimes I think as a practitioner whereas I just I'm interested in just everything like I just mm -hmm. like multidisciplinary knowledge I like looking at lots of different areas and I think that intuitively I kind of felt that the agility side of things was a way to specialize without having to really properly specialize in terms yeah. of you know going into muscle physiology or conditioning only or something like that because you can't get good at the agility area without looking super broadly and understanding all of these things which interact so I think that was the I guess the personality side of me which kind of brought that in but then actually just from a coaching history perspective I'm always driven towards challenges and solving problems and providing unique value and then I had so many different coaching and coaching opportunities where you would look and you think like man this stuff this bit's really hard like in the grand scheme of things as I, I always say this with a caveat getting strong is the simpler side of things progressive overload follow these technical models and you can cover a lot a lot of bases it's obviously more complicated than that in in reality and you then kind of move out onto the pitch you look at movement that is multiple planes of motion that is much more complex in terms of the, de the desired outcome, this interaction of constraints. And I kind of just saw that as a challenge, which really interested me, it's an area and, a, and a, an environment that I really enjoy coaching in. And then you also look around and you think, 
mm, I don't think anybody's really doing this very effectively based on what you sometimes see, or at least you then get more motivated by it because you think, I want to get much better at this. And you realize, ah, there's literally nowhere that I can easily find this information to get better at it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, an intersection of lots of things, personality, coaching experience, desire to solve a problem. And then just, you know, my interest is always very much more dynamic, um, dynamic athletic movement versus more traditional nuts and bolts, SNC coach, squat deadlift clean kind of, uh, kind of idea. Although I have that side of me, side of me as well. Yeah, no, that's really interesting because I'm going to, I'm going to repeat a phrase now that probably make every sort of SNC coach working in academy football or wherever it is shudder when coaches say, oh, they don't move well. That player doesn't mm-hmm. move well. And you're like, oh, what, the, what does that mean? And so that's interesting because it's, it's very subjective, isn't it? And we could be talking about strength. We could be talking about game insight. We could be talking about agility. So there's, there's loads of different um, subjective ways of looking at it, isn't there? But in terms of you so, and your definition of what we mean by agility, how, how would you define it? Yeah, it's and, and you're right, those kind of statements of, you know, they don't move well. And does that, I think if a coach is looking at that on pitch and they say things like that, they are referring to what we might see as agility-based movements and doing bunny ears on, on camera for people listening. And I, I do kind of think that that's what, they, that's what they mean. But then you do get to, oh, but is it agility? What's the definition of agility? And you go to the textbooks, you get all of these classic definitions of, oh, if it's pre-planned, it's change of direction. If it's reactive, it's agility. Okay, yes, that's great. Um, and we've now kind of got, oh, that's, this is maneuverability rather than agility. Agility is slightly different. I personally don't really pay attention to any of those, mm. any of those things. I, I think it at times makes it more convoluted. I, I've, I've, in, I've in the past, and I don't think it's a really accurate, great definition, but I've kind of just referred to it as, um, I don't even need the first, I, I sometimes start it with open or chaotic, but it's yeah. essentially sport specific movement within context, but it's probably um, movement, which is going to be reactive open based tasks because some people will call the movement that fencers make or that gymnastic or gymnasts make, obviously that becomes more pre-planned, but you know, being a fencer and reacting to somebody, is that still agility? Yeah, it probably mm. is. It's just within the context of their sport specific movement. I, I concentrate my focus much more on the team sport side of things, running locomotion based agility, which is obviously the, the focus here. And I just think anything where you're performing an athletic movement on pitch, which involves covering ground, in, in some respects, and you've got to do that in response to what's happening around you. That for me classifies as an agility task. I, I'm not worried about the semantics of change of direction, maneuverability, and some of the details around that just dynamic reactive movement in a sport specific situation for me is, is kind of where I just default back to. Yeah. And it's really interesting, the sort of game insight side and the reactive side of it, isn't it? Because that for me, and this is just my personal opinion, when coaches are speaking about them not moving well and all the rest of it, you've got to question whether it is a physical thing, whether it is mm-hmm. that they, they, they're 
restricted in certain ways or they've not got the certain movement patterns down or whatever it is or whether it is the fact that we see it all the time don't we in, in probably a lot of different team sports that someone might not be that so athletically gifted or whatever it is but they just read the game so well yeah. um and just for in football context i thought it was like that with the italians in the in the euros like some of the defenders and the older defenders they just read it. They read, they read the game so well, and in, in a way, you could say that is agility because they're able to adapt the bodies and and complete the task in hand um, without probably being the quickest or whatever it is. Like so, that it, that is a big part of it as well, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is where it you kind of have that reverse engineering idea where you kind of go, okay, we're seeing this mishmash of skills, attributes, and ability when people are performing in, in in whatever kind of task they're performing. And if a coach says, well, they don't move well, why do they think that, you know, if there's a player that keeps getting beaten on the left-hand side, they can't, you know, do a really hard defensive press and turn somebody to, you know, the defender's right because of movement competencies or they, yeah, they just have a certain playing style, which means they default to certain things and struggle at certain things. And this is kind of where, and, you know, I kind of have like this process that I go through with people. It's about identifying what do you see as the actual problem first? So the example with kind of those, that kind of like a, you know, the Italian squad that maybe read the game really well. There's an argument there to kind of go, are you going to impact as a practitioner those moments of the game, which are much more about reading the game being in the right position and are much more tactically dominant mm. and it doesn't mean it's not agility but it means it might be the type of situation where your influence is much lower and i think that actually from an snc perspective you should probably step back and say okay regardless of maybe some of those situations what are the situations which are clearly going to be much more heavily physically dominant which yeah. is then when it's high speed, high speed deceleration, um, you know, a real rapid disguised acceleration. And, and you find those situations which are like, right, that's where as a physical member of staff, that's where my impact can be. But you still then go, oh, but is it general movement skills? Is it physiological capability, force output? Is it reactive skills and perception skills? Is it a combination of all of those? And actually you, you have to make a, a bit of an educated guess as to which one that it is to try and yeah. move the needle, you know? Yeah, definitely. And I, I was going to ask as well about around um, catering for individuals, because obviously we're talking about team, team sports, team settings. And when we're, we're going into depth on something like this and we're looking at movement patterns and what, what we actually should target in terms of what we're going to work on, you're talking at, at 20, 25, whatever, however many it is individuals. So, What's your mm. process when you are working with squads um, to sort of manage the individual within the team setting? Yeah, really tough one to answer because the answer is it depends. Yeah. Um, it's so tough. You know, I, I was recently 18 to one coach to athlete ratio mm. and just you just can't really, unless you've had lots of time to screen, assess, plan, have some some one-on-one -on -one time outside of maybe squad settings it's very difficult to you know kind of go okay these people do this even to actually watch the group and identify 
okay, I'm going to start to box people of this person really struggles with everything. So let's just give them some yeah. basics. This person has, you know, accelerates really effectively, but isn't very adaptable. It, it is very, very tough. For me, if you, if you really want to take that route of trying to individualize, which everybody obviously ideally should, preparation time, problem solving and thought process is super important to do that first before you then start trying to kind of, you know, um, diagnose certain things in certain people because it can be a bit more, um, bit more messy than that. So if you have that time to assess, profile, identify people's weaknesses and then plan ways where you can group things, it becomes a little bit easier. You're never going to, in that squad environment, really individualize one-on-one, but I think you can easily have bubbles you know bubbles that's the covid term now isn't it (laughs) you you can easily have groups where you're like okay this lot all struggle with this kind of thing um and you might even find that just as a squad there's not enough individual variation to warrant a hugely individualized program i don't don't mean you know in terms of general strength training program a little bit a little bit easier um but to super individualize what's what's done on pitch if you've got a squad that are slow don't break well i've got big asymmetries to their dominant side or something like that you can very easily get massive benefits from good speed exposure high speed deceleration exposure get them better at breaking into their non-dominant non-dominant turning side and that you know that's kind of like a you know a bit of like a, a, of an 80 20 thing you know just doing those three things can have huge impacts um i think a lot of people miss two of those and just take the speed exposure route and maybe mm-hmm. don't start looking at left turns, right turns, hard braking situations, but really, really tough. If you have time, get as much information as you can and then start clustering people. If you don't have time, then I think it's, it is quite common that as a group, there is a, a low hanging fruit for everybody. Yeah. Which normally for me is hard braking you know, high speed deceleration that's got, that involves some kind of rotational component. Mm. I, I see that loads, especially female football. Um, especially if you think maybe probably more so female, not necessarily because of, um, because of sex, but more because of less likely to have had structured physical preparation for many years yeah. before that. And if you, if, players spend loads of times only performing in competition or at least in football-based training that's not got a deliberately constructed physical focus, it's very easy to just develop bad habits of, oh, whenever I turn, I always turn to my left because I just mm-hmm. they just feel comfortable that way and they can't work out why they always get beaten the opposite direction and, and their, their playing style just adapts to it. And yeah, I think that if you a lot of the time you can look at a squad and just find that, okay, everybody sucks at, sucks at this. I can't individualize, but if I, if I improve this with everybody, we get a big jump, a big jump up in performance. But then if you can individualize profile first, get your information and then start to cluster people into groups of how they can work together. Yeah. Cause I guess you, you're not going to come across too many like big surprises in that in that way are you like like you said the low-hanging fruit a lot of that stuff is going to be covered um mm-hmm. and you've just mentioned some of the things that you'd probably prioritize a little bit more that maybe are possibly underused in certain programs um 
But yeah, no, it's, I think it's really interesting because it, I just think it's important for us to, to cover that because players want that sort of individual approach. But what I was going to ask as well is when we're talking about that preparation, from your point of view, what goes into that? Because you've mentioned about, I think you mentioned about some screening. Um, is it going to be, what? and again, you mentioned the before starting, start, however you uh, phrased it, starting with a game in mind. So starting with performance mm-hmm. actually out on the pitch. Um, what else goes into that? Where if play, if coaches have got time to prepare, prepare and get something lined up and ready, what what's your sort of process with that? Yeah, there's different philosophies on it. With you know, this is kind of like how how can you test for agility? And it's like, whoa, that's a kind of worms in, its, in itself, you know. And there's different levels. The first thing for me is if you start with a game scenario. And let's say, you know, key, some kind of key performance indicator that impacts outcomes, um, football. Again, I don't know whether you could actually performance analyst, you know, kind of measure Mm. things, but it might be creating space to receive balls by attackers from a defensive. It might be, um, you know, a hard, heavy press that tries to control a an attacking player left side right side you kind of find those kind of situations that are physically dominant but are multi-directional and relatively chaotic and those might be your kind of key performance indicators for certain people and look at that look at those situations and think okay what what does this person need here and classic needs analysis process there And then it kind of comes down to how do I gain the information that I need to have an informed decision of how to move forwards. And you get into the testing world. The testing for me works in layers. You can try and do a, an all in one agility test. You get the the classic reactor lights and this Y shaped cutting test, which really makes opinions about, I don't like it. I know some people have used it to good effect. So, you know, I I don't, I don't think it's a great one for football. Let's put it that way. Um, I use, and this is where we do start talking about the PhD. I use an assessment, which is essentially a 505, 15 meter approach. So, 50 meter sprint, stop on the line, turn and come back five meters. I use that with a a little bit of tech to measure some different performance variables. So you start to look at deceleration capability. How do they do it on left side versus right side? How do they control their approach? And you get those quantifiable numbers based upon you then got an acceleration number, deceleration number, a change of direction 505 number. You combine that with what you see video it 2d look at how they use their use their stance and use their footwork and for me that gives you tons of information even then naturally got okay strength levels jump heights and our reactive strength index and some of the more traditional stuff which probably gets done anyway but i think that you have to look at the movement as a whole i don't think that jumping tells you enough about what's going to happen horizontally i don't think that a linear sprint tells you enough about what might happen when somebody's got to decelerate into it and then re-accelerate from it so uh, some people kind of i think frown at the 505 a little bit and i think i did at one time Mm. you know how often does a 180 degree turn take place is it that specific um 
and you do traditionally only get one number from it, 505, you know, 505 time is this. But I think if you delve deeper into it, you try and use that test to actually look at how do they break? What position are they in when they finish? How do they reaccelerate? How does that compare left side versus right side? I think that as a test is a super good tick multiple boxes at once assessment. Yeah. And I, I look at it now, actually, that the 505 is more of a deceleration test than it is a change of direction test because yeah. you know, your high speed, I say high speed, your maximal intent acceleration into a hard deceleration. And you do that with turning left or turning right, relatively specific to a defensive pressing situation. Yeah, within reason, you turn a bit further, but you've still mm-hmm. got a, a foot control in terms of penultimate step, final step, and how somebody controls their center of mass. So that, that for me is a really easy addition to a testing process that allows you to get some numbers from it, even if it's just 505 time or change of direction deficit, and then combine that with video. And I think that you can within a space of you know one assessment get loads of information to start identifying wow look at the difference here between left and right or z scores let's just see just how much variation there is between somebody who is fast but they just got no control when it comes to slowing down and, and turning so that's i think the biggest impactful um addition to a to a process and then other things just feature in as start to kind of i guess make you question whether you're whether you're right or not with your decisions i think it's a great point and a great point for testing or screening in general the the fact of recording it and and analyzing not just not just the score that comes up in terms of the time but also what is going on at that time as well because it's exactly the same with speed testing isn't it like we, we get a score from a speed test, but could we look at the mechanics of how that person is actually running and, and moving? And then I guess the other thing with that, and, and this will definitely happen in football, is if you run something like a 505, the player will feed back to you, won't they? Like if they find it harder on one side yeah, sure. or they struggle with whatever it is, they're going to tell you and they're going to feed back straight away. So having that interaction with the player is probably equally, if not more important and impactful than the actual score, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. And it's, it's interesting where, you know, I, I, I've really gravitated towards looking at movement in much more of a complex, um, in context situation. I think over the years, you think about the, the evolution of S&C, and it's by no means a bad thing, like I still support this as a notion, we've kind of gone through that fundamental movement skills and gym-based competencies, hinge, squat, single leg, um, Mm. single leg frontal plane stability, all of that stuff, super important. That's the foundation of our pyramid. But I've seen lots of athletes who they squat quite well, they RDL quite well, they're relatively stable on one leg. You then get them to do something more dynamic. And especially in football where they spend all of their time, um, you know, relatively high center of mass kind of bouncy jockeying around short steps and you now suddenly go sprint to that line turn left sprint to that line turn right and you look and you go there's a lot to be to be improved within that even though they've got that foundation of good kind of athletic movement skills but once they go into their normal football environment you know they don't lower the center of mass very well they aren't comfortable turning to one side because that's so um, used to just defaulting to where they're where they're comfortable, and the way they use their strides are kind of you know choppy steps, which aren't as aren't very useful for kind of producing lots of force in the ground. And it's an interesting 
a little bit of an interesting paradox sometimes where you know do some practitioners hear the coach say oh they don't move very well and they go well let me look at their single leg squat and i'll see what that see what that looks like and you should yeah. do that by no means am i saying that's wrong but i wonder how much people are missing okay this looks good in the gym mm. um, or even oh but their five meter acceleration looks quite good and it's like, okay that's great but there are so many other things that they are having to do on pitch which yeah. we still need to try and give some attention to um, and you could argue which is more impactful squat better get stronger produce more force or maintain those capabilities but get much better with specific movement patterns and specific coordination and output um, and there's no right answer to that right I just, I just wonder how much we yeah. consider both sides of those both sides of those options and I, and I sort of said it tongue-in-cheek at the start like about the, the coach saying that but the truth is that coach is the one that's going to make the decision if, if it is an academy they're making the decision on that player and that could be something that affects the future of them being at the club so it is a point that they're, they're basically saying they're not fitting in with what I want right now and then it's your job as a practitioner to step in and, and find out and problem solve exactly what is going on and what they want isn't it so it is one of those phrases that we are a bit like well I don't know what that means but then it's our job to go and find out exactly what it is they want because it might be different coach to coach yeah, absolutely. And, and those conversations are so important because, you know, you do get that of kind of, um, I think sometimes, you, you you know, my experience has certainly been that you get that first game because the first time, even if it's a friendly, the first time they go into that situation and what the coaches exposed them to may or may not have been sufficient, but it's maybe not at competition intensities and mm -hmm. the, the psychology is different. The reactive component is, is different. And then they suddenly see them in game and I think that's commonly when you first have that conversation of we're not fast enough, like, we're not fit enough, we're not pressing yeah. hard enough. And you then start to delve into, okay, who are you seeing doing what? And it's, that's where you get, you know, you have to really compliment. You have to find a, a, a coach is looking at it from, from a technical, tactical perspective. And they aren't necessarily looking at a player and going, they can't, you know, I keep using the same example. They can't kind of, defensively press somebody hard and try and move them to the left but they can do it effectively to the right they maybe haven't worked it out to that much detail they just see somebody who doesn't press hard and if they do they're not always very successful they get left standing or they get you know somebody goes past them and I think that they look at it from that route of just they're unsuccessful or they're not you know um, doing tactically what exactly they want them to and the S&C or the PPC's role is to go, okay, this is what I think physically is the limiting factor within that. And ideally, you know, not necessarily so much for the coach, but for themselves to then have, and here is a little bit more of an objective way that I've attempted to show it and show a coach a, a 505. You see how this person just can't do this, just really yeah. sucks with it. And then they suddenly go, that makes a lot of sense. They play on the left. They're used to doing this, but the situations when they've got to do different, they they get you know they're getting sucked into it, and we're getting you know we're, we're having being negatively impacted from that from a squad performance perspective. Um, that comes back down to that planning time, though, right? Having the time yeah. to sit with the coach and maybe play a review and start to talk about okay, these are the gaps. This is where I think this cluster of people need focus. And how much staff you have and how much time you have to be able to yeah put that kind of thing into place but for, for sure we have to kind of link those two two perspectives up together
Now, I mentioned at the start of the episode, we have uploaded the presentations from our previous meetings onto our community. So the Rotherham um, United Networking event that we ran, there's presentations from um, performance manager Ross Burberry. He presented on self-efficacy of running, how we prepare to play and went into detail around the programming at Rotherham United with their first team. And then also first team sports scientist at Rotherham, Tom Scupium, presented on no shame in simplicity. So both of those presentations are available to watch back on demand on our online community. And like I said at the start, our event at Preston, as I record this, is this evening. And presentations from Luke Hemmings, who's sports scientist at Preston, Tim Horn, who's a physiotherapist at Preston North End, and also Liam Anderson, they will all be available on the community by the end of the week as well. So if you're not already a community member and you want to get access to these presentations, you can grab yourself a free month by going to footballfitfed.com, click the community tab, sign up there, go through the full registration process and that will give you one month free on the community. After that free month, it is only £4.99 per month going forward. So go and check it out. If you're not already a member, Go to footballfitfed.com, click the community tab and sign up there. Here's part two of the podcast with Rich Clark. Yeah, 100%. No, it's a great point. And the, and the positional stuff is important as well, isn't it? Because like if players, especially if players that are playing in the same positions constantly, they're, they're naturally probably going to have certain asymmetries or certain ways that they move that they've maybe just been used to throughout a whole career so it's really important to take that in um into consideration as well but I, I also think it's just getting it's understanding the coach isn't it because that's our job as a practitioner the, the coach can say they can phrase it however they want it's our job then to understand what they actually want and maybe even question them on it and say right what okay so they don't do x what do you want them to do in that in that situation what do you want? And then I can work from it again, like what you mentioned before, starting with that game in mind, I can then work with it and, and try and put something into place that improves that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's interesting as well where you think about athlete habits. This is a common, a common thing that I get from a, a question perspective on agility of like, well, it doesn't, you know, doesn't their training kind of do that because they react to stuff. And it's like, it does some of it, but it doesn't provide, you know, the competition competition doesn't and often the sports coach training doesn't provide feedback as to you got this right or you got this wrong at least from a physical movement perspective because it could be tactically incorrect it could be um, technically incorrect because of an influence of the ball or whatever there's all these other influencing factors which create a barrier for the athlete to go okay that movement that I just did sucked why did Mm. that suck was I going too quick did I just not control my base of support, not control my steps effectively? And you have to take somebody, you know, I guess it's like the whole specificity continuum. The competition is super specific. Training is close to it, argue, arguable sometimes. And then it's kind of like how far away from specificity do you have to get in order to really start to pinpoint something which will have a, an impact back on specificity later if that makes if that makes sense yeah, yeah and it is it's it is it's um it's tough and it becomes a little bit messy but i just think you have we have to their movement in competition is arguably 
the most important thing that matters. Yeah. And there is there are there are our physiological things which are super important that are going to support that. But someone at some point in time needs to look at okay, their on pitch movement looks like this. Why? And let's try and improve it. And that won't always be linear and it won't always come back to more strength, more rate of force development, more eccentric impulse, blah, 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 all of, you know, all of our maybe more bread and butter stuff from a physical perspective. Because you've got the two sort of camps in football as well, and you? you've got the camps where they believe everything can be done on the pitch and we'll do everything through small sided games and we don't need to do much at all away from the pitch. But then there's the other side, which is, oh no, it's all about improving the strength, improving power, um, improving force production. And it's like, well, the answer probably lies somewhere in the middle. Like we, And again, like you've mentioned before, it, it will completely depend as well. So, because I was going to ask about how much work is done on the pitch, how much work is done away from the pitch. I think you've kind of already answered that, it's, but. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, that question. And I have a, whenever, whenever I kind of, I say some of these things sometimes, and I think, I've got mentors that are going to be shaking their head thinking, no, Rich, like, that's not what, you know, that's not the message. Um, and it is, it's <laughs> tough. You know? um, Ed, Ed Archer, long, long, long-term mentor of mine, who I've known for years and, and who's brilliant. And, you know, Ed is a, do the basics really well. You know, get, forget about, um, I hope I'm not putting words in his mouth. If I am, Ed, I apologize. You know, forget about trying to do some Franz Bosch drills and worrying about hip block, like get good at the basics get more robust, develop more strength and get more and get strong. Like, you know, he is, I, I've worked with him for a very long time and I absolutely have that component of my philosophy. Um, same with Ryan King. Ryan King's really similar. And again, I, you know, I speak to Ryan um, somewhat regularly and he would again be in that, in that camp. No, no, no insults to anybody or no uh, mischaracterizations <laughs> meant. Um, and it, it's just interesting where there is another side to that. Which is right and which is wrong, I don't know. Mm. Um, there isn't a right or wrong answer, I think is probably the the way to look at that. But if you don't have the skill set to be able to look at the other side of the um the other side of the the option, then you'll always default to that to that one option, which might work out really, really brilliantly. And you by no means should you overlook the importance of good force production, good fundamental movement patterns, like do that first. But, you know, especially if you're at a, a relatively good performance level or if you've had the same group for a very long time or you've got a group when actually you're, you've got the luxury of spending lots of time with them, i.e. you get lots of pitch time, you get lots of gym time, you need to have those skills to think, okay, how do I make sure that this is really translating to performance? And, yeah, I don't think there's many opportunities to get, to get good at that and there's not that much... Um, not that many resources or not that much support around to understand that this is maybe how we can, how we can look at things from a, um, from a, a pitch movement perspective, because sometimes it's just, ah, they do that in small sided games. Like that's taken care of. And yeah. well, once you start digging into it, you realize it isn't taken care of, not always. And actually sometimes those things work against you because they can cause some really, um, less than optimal movement patterns in a in a way or at least that's maybe the wrong way to put it the movement patterns are arguably optimal for the exact task they're doing then but if they do loads and loads and loads and loads of that when the task dramatically changes and it's now suddenly 
at speed three times as fast, at spaces three times as big because yeah, of a particular situation, point. at intensities that are greater. They spent 80% of their time doing it in a submaximal kind of easy. I'll find my, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll choose my, my comfortable side situation. Performance comes along and that bites them in the ass because they've just not had that learning opportunity to do that in much more, um, I guess, game defining moments, potentially. Yeah. Um, that's definitely one way to look at it. But yeah, depends. And it's really, um, really context specific. And I, I did want to, and we'll go into it in a second, around designing drills um, and specificity. But just before we go into that, that's why I really like what you said at the start about the sort of specialism in agility because, or specializing in agility, because with what we've talked about so far, when you look at that, that specialism, it suddenly covers everything, doesn't it? So it's a, it's a wide spectrum um, that we're, we're sort of looking at, but I think it's just understanding, isn't it? And, and looking at like, and, and just having, I suppose, the, the experience and the, the coaching time, um, of seeing different people, how they move, maybe different problems that you've had to solve. Um, and that then gives you the art to sort of say, no, this is what I think about this certain person and have that conversation with the coach. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. Like, I think I've maybe, it's another thing which has probably somewhat um, led me down this path is different environments and different sports where you maybe you, you don't get used to this is the way that it's done within this, yeah. within this kind of situation. And this is the system. Um, and I think you start looking at it from, this is what happens in different sports. This is how basketball players move. This is how football players move. This is why they're different because of the, um, you know, the kind of constraints that are placed on them from a competition perspective. And I think that has probably really helped me start to sort out the things that are important and the things that aren't important. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if that's really answered your question. We're going to talk about drills, aren't we? And that's just kind of made me, it's just made me again reflect on why does this stuff interest me so much? <laughs> yeah, no, no. Um, I, I just think it, it is really interesting because of all the, there's so many, um, there's not one answer. And that's why it's it's yeah. really nice to sort of look at, isn't it? Because, and, and you're also bringing in a lot of different people, like in terms of job roles. We spoke about analysts, we spoke about technical coaches, but talked about, S and C's in terms of like the strength side of things, the power side of, of things. Like there's a lot of people involved in that whole process, isn't there? Which shows that it's not just about this. It's about the whole picture and, and, and it essentially it comes down to performance, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, it's, I, I describe agility as the, as the ultimate interdisciplinary problem because you, you know, one person can deal with it. no, one specialist or one specialism in terms of strength development or, or whatever it mean, whatever it be, you can't optimally impact it without it. And you could argue that agility is just that is the performance outcome. It's the performance yeah. outcome in a lot of a lot of team sports. And actually, you know, agility as a um and, and I have really thought about this, like we have this classic, you know, you think go back to real basic, um, basic education when it's like, Oh, speed is a component of fitness. Strength is a component of fitness. And then agility, that's the one that sticks out of like, yeah. it's, it's not a thing. Uh, it's, it, well, I guess you could call it a thing, but it's a thing, which is a combination of all of these other things, which we've yeah. kind of identified exist. And, you know, that is where it becomes um, a little bit messier and there's no right answer. But I, I, um, I hesitate with that statement sometimes because I think that 
when you say, oh, it depends and there's no right answer, people naturally back away from it because they're like, ah, oh, I'm never going to fucking understand that. Like, yeah. it doesn't matter. Like, it depends. And, you know, you, you'll never know whether you're right. Um, and I think that's a bit of a cop out because there are some right and wrongs. Physics and anatomy defined certain things are going to be more effective than than others. And then the constraints that are placed on a player in a particular situation also defines that this is going to be more more effective um, than something else because of what the desired outcome is. So, you know, I do think it becomes a little bit messy and I do think it hugely depends. But I don't think that's an excuse to not try and achieve certain things in the way that people move and certain things in what it is you're trying to teach them to, you know, it's, I guess we have this, oh, the athlete will self-organize. Oh, will they? And I, I think that some people kind of like lean back on that and they go, ah, oh, that's strong and they move well in the gym. So they'll, whatever they do on pitch, they'll kind of, they'll fix it. And yeah. that's, that's assuming that they're, very general movement pattern skill of a squat or a hinge will impact the way that they do something more dynamically. And it will, will it enough? Will it, will it in that particular situation? Will it for that individual? Maybe not. And it's, uh, it's less, I guess I'd, I'd probably default to it. it's less about um, there is no right answer. And it's more about there's a right answer. You've just got to really think it through and, bring more pieces of a puzzle in to try and find it. Um, but that's what's exciting about it, right? That's what we want to do is, mm. is SNC, is SNC PPC, um, PPCs to try and really start to think, I want to impact performance. These are all of the things that feed in and this is how they manifest themselves in a dynamic environment. It's only like the game though, isn't it? Like you look at the formations used, the approaches used, the game models used by different coaches. Like there's, there's, loads out there already there's been loads out there in history of the the game as well and there probably will be loads of different approaches going forward as well so it's only the same thing so if we if we are after that one answer it's you probably got to be a little bit more open-minded haven't you and and just sort of consider what we're working with we're not working with a sport where we're traveling from a to b like we're working with a, a chaotic sport aren't we and that's probably the same with a lot of different team sports as well yeah, exactly. And it's, it's interesting where, again, you think about the way that S&C has evolved. And we're now at a point where people are getting much better on pitch. Um, the amount of speed baits. Now, I, I always, I always um, chat to James Wilde about this. I'm like, people love speed, like absolutely obsessed with it at the moment. And all for good reason. I love acceleration mechanics. I love sprint space coaching. And I'm completely on that side of the fence. And it's interesting how is our evolution becoming we've gone from powerlifting, you know, strength training kind of, you know, let's go 10, 20 years back mm. or oh, then Olympic lifting becomes really, really key. And then now we're in this phase of understanding oh, actually speed and dynamic movement does become super important. And I'm fully, fully on board with that, but maybe that next it's a natural evolution to kind of go, Oh, but actually they aren't sprinters like they decelerate <laughs> a lot and they you know they change direction a lot and they have to do things in multiple planes of motion not not only the sagittal plane and i think that that's the way that things are going i just hope that the pendulum doesn't swing so far that we forget that players need to be really strong and really robust mm -hmm. as well and yeah. that's where it comes down to even me like 
I got an agility based agility based bias in terms of my own interest, and it's very easy to look at everything from a an agility lens. But sometimes you just go, they're just a bit slow. Right? They're, just, they're just they're just not strong enough, and they're not not quick enough. So do I need to start designing really complicated perceptually specific drills when? They need to sprint more and they need, <laughs> yeah. to, they need to squat more. Sometimes that is absolutely the case, and that we, which is why it's situation dependent. Um, but when the situation isn't the case, have the skills to be able to step up and go into that different, a different realm of things, which is, you know, kind of where my, my skills have kind of merged to over the years. And a perfect segue, designing drills. <laughs> <laughs> so when we talk when we talk about this because you you mentioned it before about um taking like a small sided game for example and if a player has found a way of dealing with a, another player in in an example that might repeat itself a few times in that training game they've sort of adapted to that scenario but then when things change it might be a different player it might like you mentioned before a different space different speed whatever it is we need to be able to adapt again um, and that's where players might fall short so with that in mind, what's your sort of process for putting drills into place and, and designing drills and, and how creative do we get? And also how specific do we need to get for that player as well? Yeah. Um, how long do you have? Um, <laughs> I kind of have like there's, there's key principles in that for me. Let's say you've identified this is the outcome movement pattern or the outcome um, technical tactical situation that I'm trying to impact you, you take that and that is what you initially you initially work from when it comes to design I don't think we throw the basics out of the out of the equation I think that sometimes the basics work really well something simple and pre-planned what I think becomes important and that we met we miss you think out we think from an SNC perspective from a dominantly from a physiological perspective progressive overload five percent increase a week whatever structure you kind of kind of use and or repetitions and those are certainly part of it but then i think the skill acquisition component because we're now talking about movement skill rather than physiological adaptation if they're out on pitch doing something more dynamic there's, there's almost like new principles that come in because you're now developing a skill. You're not just trying to get a tissue or the nervous system to, to change its maximal output. Uh, and there's a couple there for me. One is going to be challenge point. If, the, if it's just too difficult for them and they continually screw it up or show you the wrong thing, you need to regress it and make it simpler, arguably similar to the, to the gym. But remember that within that idea of how challenging is it, there's a load component in terms of how fast are they going. There's an angle component or a movement complexity component of how much do they need to work in three planes of motion and really change the position of their body. And then if it's reactive, there's also a perceptual cognitive time availability component. So like those three things merge into like a just how challenging the drill is. And I think that we need to try and either simplify the perceptual side of it, make it pre-planned, makes it simpler, make the distances shorter and the movement less multi-planar, mm. makes it simpler, makes it easier. And then there's also a component which I'll, I'll probably fluff up if I try and explain it too short in, in too um, little a time. But in terms of 
how somebody's using their feet, I think people can get into, if you get somebody to sprint, they can click into left, right, left, right, left, right, as fast as they can. And then suddenly the task needs them to left, left, right, right, left, turn, right. And that then becomes a challenge in itself, even if the distances are small and the loading is, is small. Um, so just kind of with that, that's challenge, the challenge component, the movement challenge, the load challenge and the perceptual challenge. The other key principle that comes in is based upon feedback. And this is one which I think people really, really miss is does the athlete know if they get it right or not? Yeah. If there's something very specific that you want them to get better at, and if you design a drill and they can go through the drill, or they can go through the cones or they can turn on the line and they can do it incorrectly, they won't learn how to get it right. And unless it becomes super coach intensive of no, 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 bit higher, bit lower. No, not that one. Nearly do another one. And so the construction of it to become the, the drill that you're doing with them has built in feedback of you did not get that right because if it's competitive, you got beaten somebody yeah, similar yeah. performance level to you. If it is, um, this is where kind of like the, the aqua bags concept comes in. Like, is there something which gives you feedback of, I was really unstable there and I wasn't in the right position. So there's kind of like a, a body awareness component to it then, but actually just simple constraints. So a really simple example, you think the classic, um, again, 180 degree turn, run to the line, turn and come back. And you want to see a good low center of mass, a hard penultimate step, um, breaking component and you want to see them almost touch that final step and come straight back into a sagittal plane acceleration you try and get someone to do that left and right and if you're asking them to just go to a line turn and come back and do that on their bad side there's nothing stopping them doing it in a really shoddy way because there's just there's, there's nothing giving them feedback other than your other than your voice if you make it competitive, maybe they'll learn. They keep getting smoked off the line and the, I need to try a new strategy. And they might you know, mm. work that out or I'll try something slightly different. But actually, if you think about it from a, and this is kind of, I guess, more generally my coaching style and philosophy anyway, if you think about it from a constraints-based perspective rather than a verbal descriptive component, one of the really simple things that I do with that kind of movement is if a player if you want them to turn to their left, so if you want them to turn anti-clockwise on the line for a 505, then they don't aim to touch the line with their foot. They aim to touch the line with their hand, but they have to touch the line with their left hand if they turn left. Mm -hmm. If they turn right, they touch it with their right hand. Yeah. And there's some, there's some positional stuff where to touch the line with the hand, they have to get the center of mass down. To touch the line with their hand, and for them to be in a position to re-accelerate, in any logical position to re-accelerate, they need to have both of their feet past the line, their weight leaning towards the left to get their left hand down, which is then kind of like the right shin angles for re-acceleration. And let's just say something really simple like that, you then really clearly start to find people who they just, they just cannot coordinate that because now suddenly we're asking them to do it correctly I began mm -hmm. bunny ears quote unquote correctly and it's so different to what they're used to they just can't put things put things together and they would they can get immediate feedback of 
I was either slow and my position wasn't right, or I didn't touch the line with the right hand and it felt really ridiculous. Therefore, after three or four goes, they start to go, oh, oh, okay, right. That, that feels good now and slow it down, make the distances a little bit shorter if they're still really struggling and they have that learning moment and that, that point of, ah, I get it. That felt really good, which is what you get in trying to develop a skill, but you don't get in maybe in, in the gym environment as much. Yeah. They have that sudden of that made loads of sense and that felt really good. And that's the kind of example where if you're trying to design something, control the level of challenge, control whether they get feedback in it. And obviously there's kind of specificity and other things that start to start to blend in. And then they start to really make strides forwards with what is good athletic movement versus what is, oh, this is like an old habit, which if I did in a small sided games, I might get away with eight out of 10 times. And, you know, I might not be that successful, but I might not, I won't know whether it's because I've moved poorly or just been in the wrong position in the first place or not seen the ball at the right time. You start to focus in on get to this position and then this starts to challenge things um hope that made a little bit of sense i know that's a long a long answer no it's it's actually really interesting because i think that i always find it um not just listening to the specific cues but the sort of thought process into like that minimal cueing if you will like giving someone that one thing to focus on has a knock-on effect of maybe 10 other things that you've not actually had to talk about and you know what yeah. players are like as well. Some will notice straight away, oh, yeah, that actually drops me down a little bit lower and I can explode out a little bit quicker. Some just won't, will they? And I suppose that, yeah. that's what you're working with is you're working with different characteristics as well of, of each individual player. But no, I think it's re- that's really um, helpful and insightful in terms of the approach of, of not overcomplicating things, giving them a, a relatively simple cue, but something that you're going to get a lot from if, if they nail yeah. it. The reason I use that example as well, because the classic using shuttles is really common and it's always a, a touch the line with your foot yeah. or it's a touch a line with your hands. But if you don't constrain which hand it is, they're then touching the line kind of with, if they're, you know, their outside foot, if they're turning to the left with their right foot. And then they kind of like lean over and reach to touch it with their right hand. Mm-hmm. And none of those, are the positions that we want, if you, the, the cue of touch the line with your foot, which you actually get in a five or five test, which is, you know, arguably a, um, something to look at within that, the cue of touch the line with your foot for me is a loose injury concern because one of the things that you don't want from an ACL injury risk perspective is you don't want them thinking about reach this foot out and touch this specific position, especially not if the trunk is going with them yeah. because that's creating all of the wrong focus. You want them to only have their feet as wide apart as they need to you want them to have their focus on getting low and re-accelerating not you know this is you can start going on a tangent here to focus of attention distance the effect of distance of how far away the um the kind of the focus is and it's like the outside foot touch has a arguably a negative impact on some of the performance characteristics arguably has a could have a negative impact on some of the injury um, position characteristics also related to performance and a really simple change touch the line with your left hand if you turn left and if they start doing that in a really funky position that'll be so slow they'll find another way to another way to do it at least that's my my experience and, and I've you know I've seen somebody tear an ACL 
doing a shuttle mm. and arguably but at least could be partially because of that reason because they're mm. thinking touch the line of my foot and oh, I'm going left so I'll reach my right foot out as far away from me to try and gain ground and it gets can get really messy so you know I guess it's just thinking outside the box a little bit sometimes and going to what are the physical things I want to see how can I optimize the learning that is potentially going to take place in this in this movement i.e., the task or the drill does the um does the feedback for me and then how might this actually look in a a context relevant situation that i've got in terms of number of athletes and the time you might have and, and things like that yeah brilliant that was a great insight and no, i really appreciate you going through that and i know there's loads we can probably expand on and we've not even got for everything that we said we we're going to talk about because i think there's some great information there but we're coming up just short of an hour and i don't want to take up your whole day um but i really appreciate you going through that because i think there's been some great detail in there um and we'll have to try and do another one as well because i think there's still there's still so much we could talk about in terms of around this subject but we always finish the podcast with the same few questions for the guests so i thought i'd throw these at you just to finish off um first one being who i know you've mentioned a few people already but who are some of the biggest influences on your career so far um Ed Archer, definitely. Like, you know, he's a long standing mentor of mine, great friend, and he's really shaped the way that I think and stopped me getting too excited by new stuff. Just going <laughs> the basics done really well. Like, he's absolutely brilliant. Um, so he is definitely up there. Um, I think if I named anybody else, I would, there's probably too many other people who now sit underneath that. And if I named some of them, I'd feel bad about the others. But there's, there's lots of other people who, I've seen them practice or had conversations with them and then their less frequent mentorship has made me really start to to rethink things and that, that for me is the beauty of social media as much people you know hate it sometimes especially with how some people can be on Twitter but the number of people who have impacted the way that I think mm-hmm. purely through initially making connection with them on social media and then following up, up later there's there's so many of them um, one of them is not Simon Brandish, but he's still on the show. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think that would probably be my, my default answer. You know, um, default answer, Ed has been probably the, the biggest one. And then the rest of it has been individual contributions of little touch points over the, over the years. Brilliant. And what would you say your biggest strength is as a practitioner? Um, definitely this stuff. I would describe it. I'd, I'd at least say this in comparison to other S&C coaches. I'm not... Skill acquisition expert, or a um, you know, or a, a movement um, a movement guru, but in comparison to the regular S and C coach, for me, it's dynamic multiplayer movement, which in team sports becomes agility because because it becomes reactive and you have to pull in those perceptual cognitive components. But it's yeah, it's really looking at how people move in context and understanding the intersection between injury and performance in much more dynamic situations rather than our, our more traditional kind of gym-based gym-based situations. Brilliant. And final one, I always ask about CPD, but by this one, I just mean like, where do you do your learning now? Like in terms of, is it, it doesn't have to be courses, like where, where do you do your sort of research and learning? Yeah, it's, I've done, I've done everything over the years um the classic like uh, if there's a cpd event i've been to it um you know masters 
start to do a PhD, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I'm actually probably now in the last few years, I haven't really done that much more that's particularly formal. Mm-hmm. And it has just now become, especially because of, because my interest has become this agility space and there isn't anything catering for that for me to really upskill other than a few, um, a few specific examples. So actually like my, the biggest learning and the biggest, I guess, almost recommendation I can give to other people is understand the first principles of the literature understand what we have support for of this is important and then it's about trying to take information from lots of different sources and trying to synthesize it all into all into one piece and when you're trying to do that have conversations with people because yeah. you know like I'd, i'll speak to I'll, I'll have some messages that might be with um i don't know they might be with Stu mcmillan about certain things and then suddenly i'll have a different perspective on it or you know i might speak to um, might speak to ed who will kind of think about it from a different way or speak to um good friend of mine who's a um, ainsley who's a physio osteopath and you kind of then just start to look at it from different perspectives with your good sound understanding of the scientific principles and then start to build and develop that way I, i've probably in the last few years done that much more than anything that's been particularly formal because i you know just a bit of a critical thinker you hear somebody say something you think nah, i don't believe it right or you just think like i don't think it's that simple and i strive for have a discussion about it let's find out what support there is for that or is it just opinion um and that kind of stuff that's kind of the way that i i kind of work now which is really what i um yeah i think there should be more of brilliant and that and that's obviously what we talked about in terms of um utilizing the whole staff in place when we talked about getting to that the bottom of the problems before as well isn't it utilizing everyone that's there um so that ties in really nicely but rich this has been quality mate really really good um agility is something that obviously when we break it down we have spoke about the individual sides of it in terms of strength in terms of speed out on the pitch game insight things like that but i don't think we've gone into so much depth on a podcast before so i really appreciate you coming on and uh giving us a little insight into your sort of research and knowledge and everything that's going on at the moment. But people that don't follow you and that, um, that aren't aware of, of everything that you got going on at the moment, where would you sort of direct them to just keep, keep up to date with what's going on? Yeah. Twitter's the best place. Um, it's the only social media platform that I'm particularly active on. Um, I'm rich underscore agility lab on, on Twitter. Um, if anybody's got real specific, uh, agility-based interests, or they recognise that that's something they really want to upskill on. That's something that I've got a course that's being that's going to be kind of be out and um, and up for that stuff. Probably you know October 2021 is my is my aim, and that's all going to be part of what is going to be a slightly bigger 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 brand or bigger platform, I suppose. Which um, and the idea is that kind of what I've just said with the CPD then is that education is much more effective if there's some discussion, some debate some first principles thinking and some varied perspectives and some mentorship, you know, there's lots yeah. that um, go into, I won't go into a heavy sales pitch, um, but yeah, you know, if, if, if agility is something that's you recognize the need to kind of upskill on um, putting something pretty comprehensive together for that and yeah, come and come and find me on Twitter. And that's the best way to best way to connect with me for sure. Perfect, mate. Well, I really appreciate your time today and uh, we'll stay in touch. All good. Cheers, Ben. Thanks very much. 
Thank you for listening to episode 152. I really enjoyed this chat with Rich and to be honest, it could have kept going for hours, but I don't want to make it into a Joe Rogan length podcast. So we'll cut this one at this point, but definitely keen to get Rich on again. Um, and if you do want him to cover anything specific when he comes back on, please let us know. You can drop us a message on social media at Football Fit Fed or email mail at footballfitfed.com. Anything around agility or anything that we spoke about in the podcast as well. Um, I think we covered some great stuff. Just before I go into my takeaways, go and give Rich a follow at rich underscore agility lab over on Twitter. Um, I think early on he, he spoke about he felt the need to specialise in something and then he felt agility was that area that he wanted to specialise in. But it turns out after talking about it and looking into it, it isn't such a specialist area because it covers such a vast uh, array of topics um, and things that we have to consider day to day when preparing players. So I think that was interesting that he felt the need to specialise, but he specialised in something that basically covers a, a large um, number of areas within what we do. He, he kept saying about starting with the game in mind, which I fully agree with, looking at performance and working back from that performance. And then obviously we spoke about how we factor in individual work with players and that has to come from that performance because we can do what we want away from the pitch, but it has to transfer over what, what we do onto the pitch as well. He talked about hard breaking and um, not only hard breaking, but hard breaking with rotation being as a key air, key thing that he feels that we need to train. So we've talked about deceleration before and adding deceleration into any speed work, but decelerating whilst rotating, he felt the need that this was an area that we could improve on and something we could add into our practice or something to maybe consider. And then also getting everyone involved with um, the whole process around training agility. And by that, I mean physiotherapists, technical coaches, strength conditioning coaches, sports scientists, everyone can have a say on improving the performance of that player. And I think that was a really important message from Rich as well. So some really great information in this one. And I feel like we just touched the surface and I'm really keen to get into part two with him as well. So let me know what you think about some topics for part two. He's also got some um, a course coming out as well. So you can go and check it out. Go and give them a follow on Twitter initially at str coach curricks and that's spelled c-u-r-r-i-c-i-c-s sorry um go and give them a follow and rich has got a website as well which is strengthcoachcurriculums.com and he's going to be releasing more information about a course that he's going to be running very soon as well and hopefully when he comes back on the podcast he'll have a bit a little bit more information around that too but if you want to get on the email list and find out more just drop Rich a message or you can contact him through that website or on the Twitter as well um, and you'll get first information all around the course and possibly some early bird prices on that as well. So go and give him a shout and go and give Rich a follow as well. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. Like I said, I found this one really fascinating. I think there's loads of stuff that we can dive into with Rich. Um, keen to do the part two, so let me know what you think. In the meantime, go and give us a follow if you don't already follow Football Fitness Federation, Football Fit Fed on both Instagram and Twitter. And a big thank you as always for your support. And I'll speak to you again next week in episode 153.